Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. Uh, Peter's report to the church at Jerusalem. Now that the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, he circumcised believers, criticizing him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. When, then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men came to me from Caesarea, arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when, he, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Then when they heard this, they were silenced and they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Will you pray with me, please? Who are we, God, that we could hinder you? I pray that you would get us out of the way of your spirit moving, that you would get our fear or our stubbornness or our anxiousness or our determination to hold on to what was that you would get that out of the way and let us not hinder you, but use us. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. Old Faithful, news to probably no one, is a geyser in Yellowstone National Park. It was named in the 1870s because of its regular, predictable eruptions, 21 a day. 
It was quite a draw for tourists who want to be able to plan out their visit, right? With some certainty. I came to Yellowstone to see a geyser erupt. I don't want to wait for hours and then have it maybe not happen at all. So Old Faithful delivers. It gives the people what they want. Or so the story goes. But if you do a little more digging, you might see that Old Faithful isn't like an every hour on the hour kind of geyser. And even its 21 average daily eruptions have dwindled to an average of more like 20 since an earthquake in 1959. If you do a little more digging, it might seem like Old Faithful is in fact changing. That what we have named because of its dependability and predictability and steadfastness in an uncertain world isn't as stable as we thought. There's an FAQ page on one of the Yellowstone websites and the second question on this question page goes, I heard Old Faithful isn't as faithful as it used to be. Is it slowing down? And I love the answer that the website gives. It goes, it depends on what you call faithful. It depends on what you call faithful. What do we mean when we use that word? When we use it to describe, say, our faithful God or our call to be a faithful people. Maybe we think of it like we thought of the geyser before all this new information. God is steadily there unchanging. We can count on God to be just as we expect, predictably present every hour on the hour. And for us to be faithful, maybe that means that we keep our end of a promise, that we practice the traditions that are handed down to us. We are also predictably present, unchanging, steadily doing what we were taught to do by the faithful ones who've gone before us. But what happens to our concept of faithfulness when landscapes shift, when there's an earthquake, and suddenly Old Faithful is on a slightly different schedule and the future might not look like the past? What happens to our concept of faithfulness when, like Peter experienced in our story today, there's a huge shift and suddenly God is saying, Peter, I know you've kept this kosher law your entire life and that it has been drilled into you that faithfulness means unwavering fidelity to traditional worship and the study of Torah and the following of a long list of rules. But what I'm saying to you now is I'm doing a new thing. Peter's upbringing as a Jew in Israel meant that he was taught that God's faithfulness means God protects and chooses us and no one else. And we are faithful by following these rules and worshiping God in these particular ways. But the story from the book of Acts shows us that God is maybe a little more fluid than previously thought. For centuries, God has been saying to the Jewish people, I'm setting you apart. You're a holy people. This is how you are to keep yourselves separate. And now in Acts, God tells Peter in regard to non-Jews, don't make a distinction between you and them. 
It seems as though God's faithfulness is more complex than a simple, I choose you and only you. The covenant is expanding, is widening to include everybody. And what faithfulness looks like in light of this new information is not so much about kosher and rules and traditional worship and is instead about partnering with God to grow and build an inclusive community founded on the self-giving love of Jesus Christ. Peter was so sure he knew what it meant to be faithful, but God went and changed the whole story. 151 years ago, Yellowstone National Park became the first national park in the United States and one of the first in the world. Conservationists championed the idea of setting aside land that would be completely devoid of people. The geographic features and the views and the wildlife preserved exactly as they were for generations to come. National parks would be a protected place, unspoiled by human habitation. The beauty of the natural world on full display for people from all over the globe to come and see. The officials who spearheaded the effort in Yellowstone and many others throughout the nation were being faithful stewards in the way that they knew, that they thought was best, to keep a promise to future generations of Americans. However, in doing so across the board and particularly in Yellowstone, they expelled multiple nations of indigenous people living in their region. Those people and their livelihoods and their personal and collective histories were largely erased from the story of our nation and of the national parks. And not only were they expelled and erased, but the wealth of native knowledge about conservation, and sustainable living and the restoration of health for fragile ecosystems, all of that wisdom was systematically ignored by Western naturalists and scientists and greedy entrepreneurs who continue to propagate this lie that they were winning the West from unruly savages. The white Americans who took control of Yellowstone thought, for example, that fires were bad, were to be avoided at all costs, put out as soon as possible. They are destructive, right? Wolves, too, a total menace. Wolves are mean-spirited killers. They're chasing down and killing the wild animals that are so sacred to the park and so popular with visitors. Not to mention that wolves were a general public enemy among settlers in the West whose farming and ranching efforts were thwarted by the despised hunters. So again, believing themselves to be faithful, trying to keep an environment preserved and untouched for future generations, using the tactics of their European ancestors and the knowledge gained in their own culture's scientific knowledge base, the land managers in Yellowstone systematically eradicated both wolves and fires, not to mention indigenous people from the park. Only then, what happened? Well, without the wolves at Yellowstone, the grazing animals like the elk and the deer were in no hurry as they ran through the park's vegetation, eating through it faster than it could regrow. 
Because when wolves were around, the elk couldn't linger too long on any single riverbank. They'd quickly be chased off from those exposed areas. But without wolves, they just hung out there. And they ate up all the shrubs and the grasses and the young trees, which made way for erosion of the soil on the riverbanks, which was exacerbated by the elves' heavy hooves. And so the rivers became polluted and the trees died. And with the trees went the birds and went the beavers and went the fish. And everything that people loved about Yellowstone that they thought they were saving by killing all the wolves, it started to die away. Or how about the fires? Ignoring the indigenous wisdom about the importance of fire to maintain a healthy forest, Yellowstone park managers said, no, fires are bad. And fire suppression is how we keep humans and the landscape safe, safe and unchanged. Faithful, right? But it turns out that fires are essential for new growth in a forest, that they're part of the life cycle. And when they're suppressed, the cleaning out and the regeneration that keeps the system healthy can't happen. Not allowing natural fires to arise and take their toll and put themselves out counterintuitively creates the circumstances for the extreme out of control destruction that happens when a fire does take root and tears through far more acres of unhealthy forest than it might otherwise had there been proper natural management. Where we once bought into the belief that fires were needlessly destructive and should be suppressed at all costs, and that wolves were terrible, ferocious beasts that were out to kill our livestock and our children and our three little piggies, we now know that wolves and fires are essential to a healthy ecosystem. The old story, the one we had used to determine what faithful stewardship looked like, was incomplete. With more information and deeper respect for both current science and ancient native wisdom that's always been there, albeit ignored, with new information, what it means to faithfully steward a place looks different. What we had been taught to fear or to mistrust, whether it's fires and wolves or the wisdom of other nations, or how Peter and the Jewish Christians were taught to fear Gentile outsiders. What we had been taught to fear is in fact essential. It's part of God's equation. Is old faithful not as faithful as it used to be? It depends on what you call faithful. Faithful, it turns out, does not mean unchanged. In a minute, the choir is going to sing the beautiful, beloved hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And the second line, the words go, Thou changest not. And we're still allowed to sing this hymn and to love it, but Thou changest not might be wishful thinking on the lyricist's part. We want God and all of our faith and all of our traditions and beliefs and practices to be the same forever into the past and forever into the future, but that's simply not how it is. God can be dynamic, can be changing, just like old faithful is changing. The landscapes change and God adapts. 
coming in the form of a human as Jesus, for example, huge adaptation. Appearing to Peter in our story, waking him up and saying, hey, the context is different now, so I'm doing a new thing. Invite the Gentiles. Seems like a dynamic God to me. What if faithfulness doesn't mean this dogged adherence to a set of practices that we inherited from someone else or stubbornly sticking to a past concept of a promise, no matter what fundamental circumstances have changed? What if faithfulness means that we take new information and changed landscapes as they come and we live what we believe? We live what we believe about love or grace or God's justice. Faithfulness invites and perhaps requires steadfast reassessment, constant re-examination, acknowledgement that we are small, limited humans with only partial information. Faithful living involves loving God differently, maybe, than we did before. Just like faithful stewarding of land, of places like the national parks, means something different in 2024 with the knowledge and that we now have than it did in 1872. We're not out here to keep the landscape from changing. Landscapes change over time. It's how they stay healthy. When we talk about faithful living, whether we mean how we live on and care for the earth, or faithful living in terms of how we love God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourselves, the recipe includes the introduction and wrestling with new ideas. And sometimes, yes, all of this feels unsteady. And we wish that old faithful would just go off every hour on the hour into eternity. And that God would stay how we've always pictured him. We were taught to picture a him, right? And that the wolves and that the fires would just stay in their boxes. And these complicated stories about the establishment of national parks and who was a hero and who was a race would stop being so complicated. Maybe we wish that being patriotic on the 4th of July was as simple as we felt it to be as a child. It can be unsteady. It can feel that way when the landscape shifts and the prover proverbial sheet is lowered down to us, full of everything that we were taught to hate or to fear or to avoid. And God says, actually, it's not that simple. You are not my only chosen people. I'm going to need you to love more broadly, to widen your circles, to change once again your concept of faithfulness. This is not and has never been easy. But the promise is this. The promise is that even when the ground is shifting, that God is with us. That even when we're really going through it, even when we're up all night like Peter or like his ancestor Jacob, wrestling with what we just can't reconcile, that God is there wrestling too. That God still faithfully shows up, 
meaning we always know it's going to happen, just not perhaps on our schedule or the same way it happened last time. Thou changest not might not be the most accurate hymn line, but morning by morning new mercies I see is indeed on the nose. New mercies, new ways of loving, surprising ways of being loved. Every day we're awake to notice them. And every day, no matter how much we've gotten wrong, no matter previous failures or misunderstood information, every day we're invited back to this project of faithfulness, of living God's love in the best way we know how today. Every time we come to a table, we remember these promises, that God is with us, that God is changing and coming to us now in bread and cup, whether it's unleavened loaves and wine, or King's Hawaiian bread and grape juice, or our post-COVID spread of little cubed bread and rainbow juice cups, that God is showing up in changing circumstances and invites us to the story, all of us. No matter what group we belong to or have been excluded from, no matter what we've done or failed to do, even if we can't imagine ourselves to be lovable, God invites us and says, you belong here. Thank you for being in worship today to Jenna for her leadership and Simone. Thank you, choir, for going with me when I forgot to look at the bulletin. <laughs> I invite you again to join us for snacks and for fellowship out, out in the fellowship hall after church and to come back next week as we take a journey to Everglades National Park. As you go, I pray that morning by morning you do see new mercies. Find yourself loved and loving in new ways, adapting to a changing landscape, but knowing that God is with you through every step. Go in peace. Amen. NBUMC Weekly is a production of North Bethesda United Methodist Church, located in Bethesda, Maryland. Follow us on YouTube and Facebook at North Bethesda UMC or on Instagram at Loving All Neighbors. All music is licensed via Christian Copyright Licensing International, CCLI. <laughs>